Hi, and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in the backyard of Wade, and it's Wade and I, Mike, and we are going to continue our Winging It series here for the summer of 2018, which is Walking Through Turning Points, a book by Mark Knoll, who uh, got about 13 different um points in Christian history that he thinks are important, not necessarily the most important, but turning points that are significant. And they're, they're springboards to discussion of broader things. Yeah, right? and especially this one. You know, the other ones I think were all, and this one too could be its own episode, of course, historically speaking and theologically speaking. But for this one, for sure, I think we will springboard into quite a few different different things. And maybe I'll just go and, and go where we've been, mention where we've been, and then we'll get to uh, our episode episode today. So we started with the fall of Jerusalem, and then we went to the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, and then uh, Benedict's rule, which was really the rise of monasticism, and, and he... I thought he, it was a uh, do not talk about Fight Club. <laughs> and then you also have, um, you have the coronation of Charlemagne, the Great Schism. Last time we did the Diet of Worms, and this time we're not going to jump a good four or five hundred years like we have in the past, but we're going to get to 1534, which is the... This is eight, the shortest gap in the whole book, is, I think. The yeah. English Act of Supremacy, and so we're talking about Henry Eighth here. We're talking about the Anglican Church breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the actual uh, Act of Supremacy supremacy, the act of the parliament that said, okay, the king of England is in charge of the Anglican church, this new Anglican church, and no longer the pope. And and it would have been interesting to talk about all the political things. You got uh, Charles V, who is kind of the protector of the pope in Italy, and so the pope has kind of got to play nice with him, and so he doesn't want to give an annulment to to, uh, Henry VIII from his sixth marriage. Fifth marriage? Well, from the first is the big deal because Henry marries uh, Catherine Child. of Aragon, and, and she had been married to Henry's brother. And so by the you know Levitical law, this was supposed to be a no-no. Um, but Catherine says that uh, she and Henry's brother never uh, consummated this relationship. And so the, the Pope actually grants a dispensation saying, okay, you can marry her. And then later Henry's going to say, yeah, I want an annulment because you never should have granted that dispensation. <laughs> and isn't it true that so Charles V is related to it's his aunt, right? It's, I believe it's his aunt. Yeah, yeah and so there because, is. I mean, because at this point the Holy Roman Empire encompasses both Spain and. Yeah. And so you'll have later with Mary is married to Philip of Spain. Um, this plays in English politics as well too. And then you throw in Spanish Armada, all this stuff. It's a really interesting time. It's fascinating. And Charles V is, you know, uh, uh, as a political leader, wants to keep Henry VIII in his place, so to speak. And but also he wants to maybe, um, you know, fight for the honor of his of his relative. But really, it's a springboard into what then is going to come after the Reformation. We're going to have um, a whole. A whole series of religious wars and revolutions. You have even into the Thirty Years' War in 1618 to 1648. You have the rise of nationalism. So it's kind of an it's a, it's a it is if certainly you want to understand a turning European point. soccer today. You have to understand this time period. I mean, whether it's uh, the old firm in Scotland with Celtic or Rangers. Uh, I mean, whether it's why the Dutch are wearing orange when they compete in the World Cup. Uh, this period is, is uh, impacts a whole bunch of stuff, including. 
soccer. Yeah, you know, that's interesting when you bring up sports. You know, we it's one of those things where in America we do have a history, but it's a very short history. So today, I, or yesterday, was the 99th birthday of the Packers, and, and there's a history for the Packers, right? The uh, the, uh, the Acme packing plant, and, and you can talk about the history of the economics of that uh, Northwoods town and stuff like that. But nothing like the history of Europe and their sports. Which is why FIFA will, I mean, has all these rules about, um, what do you call them, partisan songs or whatever the case may be, things you can uh, sing or not sing, you know, because it does go back. And I mean, I, I mean, I know people now who live in Europe who are not religious in the least, but when it comes down to these songs in a big uh, football match, it's as if uh, William of Orange were alive still, or, or you know, um, uh, you know, we're in Northern Ireland, whatever the case might be. Yeah, so this is definitely a turning point. And and speaking of that, uh, something I've always thought about is when you watch like the Olympics or the World Cup or something like that, and you notice all these these tricolored flags, even outside of Europe. And of course, that will go back to actually the French Revolution. So uh, a, a bit bit later but just Which is to, the worst of the revolutions of all the revolutions it's one of the worst yeah uh but just to just it, it always it strikes me that these things that we call nations um really are fairly new things right they all have the same flags and what really bothers me is that they all have the same type of music for their national anthems so you're like some african nation wins a gold medal or some south american and they have like this they have the same type of music from the 1800s in like you know in Europe and and it's just that this is time colonialism's period. inheritance yeah. yeah it's just this time period of this nationalism and what's interesting is like i think a few countries have said let's have a new flag uh, i think new zealand maybe tried to have a contest for a new flag and i believe sweden wanted to have a new national anthem if i started a new country you know what our national anthem would, what be? would it be um was it naughty Sa- by nature? Save it. This is a great hip hop parade. This is a great free be, for all. Because can you imagine like a national anthem with like hip hop parade? Oh, <laughs> it would be better. Hey, because you'd have way more hand gestures than just like staring at a flag. But so you like watch the opening World Cup, you know, uh, the opening of a game, and you got these guys trying to sing House this of song. Pain, uh, jump would be a there good go. national anthem too. These guys singing this jump, song jump. of like that's, you know, a white guy's song from this stuffy time in 1848 and you know you're like this is not fitting and so when places like sweden and new zealand are breaking away from that that is kind of a that's that's a little bit not a litmus test but that's something of the future that maybe nationalism has or run you can do the course. german thing and just remove an unfortunate verse <laughs> <laughs> isn't that tune in our hymnal too the tune for their national anthem yeah isn't deutschland it? Uh, yeah can I go on the record and say I don't think our national anthem is very good? We're going to edit. Peter, please edit that out. But later. like when you're Just... ever at an event, like especially with ball, I mean, a lot of events where like yeah. no one is singing except the people there. Okay. It is not easy to sing. No, and it's it's one of those things where it's It's like... very American in that like talented individual singers can like do stuff yeah. with it. Like they can make it their own. But as far as like I... a, a congregational or a like a public singing type thing, it's just not in a what do you call that, a key or a register or whatever that a lot of people can hit. I, I think it's better than most countries. I just know when I would go to hockey games as a kid, I always thought, oh, Canada was more singable. Yeah. I, but it's just of that time period, and, and you wonder if things are going to change. It's it's something that's striking, and it does go back to this to this time period where you start to see more nationalistic 
uh, impulses. And one of the questions that Noel will kind of Noel will kind of uh, wrestle with is. Does this come out of the Reformation? Is it before the Reformation? Is it separate from the Reformation? Is it intertwined with the Reformation and the Renaissance? Or do a bunch of forces seize upon the Reformation yep. so you know, you have, to advance something that's already present? You have all of these options there, and probably there's truth in, in a little bit of truth in each of them, but it's definitely a fantastic time. And, and uh, I always get a kick out of when somebody sees something on the news and they go, this is some interesting, wild times. I'm like... Yeah, I don't know. Like, if you're living in <laughs> England in 1534, and your king's like, "This wife gone, this wife gone. We're gonna break from the, the Roman whole Catholic Church. We're gonna, yeah, we're the whole, <laughs> we're gonna totally change our complete culture and political. You know, maybe we ought. To, maybe our life isn't that complicated. So, wait, I'll kick it to you, and you can go wherever you want <laughs> with this topic. Uh, maybe if. Uh and we've hit on this a little bit in previous stuff, but if we can kind of, I think it'd be good to get at the uh, medieval underpinnings of some of these developments. Um, I don't know that we talked much about the investiture controversy, uh, if we got into that or not. Um, but we have with the investiture controversy, um, I think the roots of what what will develop with uh, national churches later um, the idea of this tension between church and state, uh, who has the right to do what? And if we're talking with the Reformation, we're thinking 16th century. Um, with the investiture controversy, we are talking about something that took place in uh, 1076. Um, we're talking 11th and 12th century. And this is something that was a struggle between uh, Pope Gregory Seventh, a reformed pope, uh, by all accounts as popes and go. And reformed of the Catholic Church, not... Right, Capital but but honestly, seemed to want to reform the Catholic Church, and then Emperor Emperor Henry the Fourth of the Holy Roman Empire, um, in a debate over who should vest investiture, put investments, bishops, and this uh, ends up being uh, Gregory excommunicates Henry. Henry is going to go to Canossa, which is kind of like a mountain retreat of the Pope, and uh, in the snow and mountain snow, repent for several days. Um, barefoot purportedly. Now, this doesn't mean he was barefoot the whole time, but he's making very public gestures of repentance. Uh, Gregory's put in a tight spot because the Pope is supposed to forgive, and Gregory forgives, and then Henry will turn on him and drives him out of Italy, um, and uh, he'll die uh, in exile, and a new Pope will be installed. Um, but you also have the development of the Papal States as kind of its own kingdom, and so we sometimes forget, even today, the Pope is a secular ruler, even though it, it, even as much as he is a spiritual head. Uh, if you think of the United Nations, right, the Pope has a voice there because he's head of the papal estates. Um, and when Kennedy was if you running— have your, If you have your own post office, then right. you're legit. And when Kennedy was running for office in America, this was big as to um, whether uh, would he be loyal to a foreign power, namely the Pope, or to the American people— and uh, so you you have a long history now of the Pope not simply being a, a spiritual ruler. You have in the old Holy Roman Empire, as we talked about last time, bishop princes who are re representing both the secular and the spiritual. And the distinction is not clear there, which makes the tensions all the more exacerbated. And even these bishop princes have uh, temporal, uh, local concerns that they would play over against Rome. 
And so the idea uh, you have in France as well, you know, these controversies over who makes a pope, who makes a bishop, who should appoint priests. Um, you know, in France, you have this Gallican tradition, which says church councils are superior to um, the pope, the papacy. The ultramontanists, those over the mountains in Rome, say the pope is superior. And this gets to uh, the long delay in calling the Council of Constance and then the Council of Trent. Um, so these tensions are already clearly there. What you have with Henry VIII is someone who is somewhat on the periphery of Europe at this time. We think of England later as being a major force in Europe and in the world. Um, but there, it's a force that's largely um, right on an island. And occasionally it's had wars with France. Um, it is something to be reckoned with. But this is before the Spanish Armada. This is before um, colonialism on any large scale uh, for England. And still different, always different, always always wants to be right. just a little bit different than the continent, so the continental philosophy. Right. Yeah. And Henry VIII, though, is never going to be Charles V at, as a contemporary. I mean, he's never going to wield the same extent of power. Um, you have an England that has this weird governing structure where you have a parliament, the notion of commonwealth or common weal, the well-being of the whole, uh, the Magna Carta. I mean, all these things that play in. That just makes it uh, different than, I mean, France is on its way to absolute monarchy at this time. Um, the empire is trying to figure out, is it going to be a, largely, a, I think, state rights versus uh, federalism in America. You have things like this playing in. And so um, the, all these, everything that will develop, all these tensions are there already. Um, but as with any, we see in our own day when, it, when um, a crisis comes up or, or some big thing comes up, Fault lines that were already present become evident. And I, um, when we talked about my book, An Uncompromising Gospel, this happens in Lutheranism after Luther's death. The fault lines were there, but then they're exacerbated. Um, but what I think why Noel picks England is the act of, act of supremacy becomes kind of emblematic for what will happen. Um, in some cases, centuries later, uh, elsewhere. But um, in 1534, uh, so Henry wants a divorce from his first wife, who's not giving him a male heir. Um, he wants to uh, marry a woman who is amenable, sensitive, uh, friendly towards the Reformation. Uh, Thomas Cromwell, that could be an episode in and of itself, seems to be amenable, friendly towards Reformation. But he wants to marry Anna Boleyn, and he needs to get a ready. He doesn't want a divorce. Divorce is a bad word for Henry as much as it is for, for Luther or others. And he actually reached out to the Lutherans asking their opinion. And as much as Melanchthon and Luther put their foot in their mouth with Philip of Hesse, they say, no, this isn't grounds for divorce. Um, but you're going to have Protestants in England who are willing to say, you know, you have grounds for this um, because they see it as an opening for Protestantism. And, uh, I mean, other reasons, too. I don't I don't mean to impugn anybody. Um, there's always more in play than people realize with, with, with things. Um, but this will lead to Henry, in essence, wanting to be Catholic without the Pope. Um, it's important to remember uh, Henry had written against Luther, or probably Sir Thomas More wrote against Luther, and Henry put his name on it. Um, he wanted the uh, the title Defensor Fidei, the Defender of the Faith, for having done so. Henry saw himself as a good Catholic, but by this uh, political, familial, personal issue, he's going to see himself thrust into a situation where uh, we... Uh, we have this act of supremacy that will come about. And maybe, Mike, if you don't mind there, just a little bit of background or unpacking. What do we mean by who supremacy over what? Who is supreme? 
1534, who's decreeing this? What's the point of it? Stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, Archbishop Cranmer, Cranmer? Yeah. is uh, going to give Henry VIII what he wants, which is an annulment. And so uh, definitely this is, um, this is Henry VIII pulling these strings. He's definitely, what's definitely pushing this is his desire for his, his own marriage for, uh, to, to the wife that he wants um, so that he can get a male heir. Um, but you have, like you said, Wade, this, uh, for the time, a weird kind of uh, governmental structure, which I think still weird in, in even in today where you have a monarch, but you still have a, have a parliament. And so I believe it's the parliament who is going to issue this act and basically say that the, the king of England is in charge of the church in England and not the Pope. And so it's definitely uh, ripe with political uh, ramifications. It's going to have long-lasting effects, of course. Um, even even still in recent times, the King of England, one of the titles was Protector of the Faith, right? And there was a big debate over whether it meant Protector of the Faiths, you know, in a, in a multicultural world or still of the faith. And I believe... Uh, uh, Charles kind of has been wishy-washy Prince on Prince Charles that. has said he'd like to be protector of the faiths. Yeah, yeah and, and he, I think if I have this right, I may be incorrect that originally he kind of pushed against that, but then now has become in favor of a protector of the, uh, of the faiths, which I suppose you can understand in a modern democracy, but... But it's s- problematic for the church structure. Sure, yeah. you, you, you just see this, it, still today, this idea that the head of the Anglican Church, right, that the protector of the Christian faith in England, and then therefore in later centuries, the great English empire um, is a secular ruler, right? And uh, we say, that's crazy town, but remember that the Pope was a secular ruler at that time, and those things were just mixed up. And so... uh, Remember, all the capital Christians have invested in electing the Christian president for the <laughs> right, entire right. history of the United States. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's still mixed up. It's still mixed up, of course, and it's just the world we live in. Um, but maybe we could go a different, different direction here and talk about uh, wh- what is the Protestant Reformation, or I should say Protestant Reformations, if we, if we can use that term that way. Um, what does that do to the political structure, too? So what, what are you going to do when you break away from the Roman Catholic Church in, in Wittenberg or in Zurich or Geneva, that the legit, a very pressing question, like the next day is going to be who's in charge, who's in charge. And we often forget, we, we, we foist upon the church, even in America, American governmental structures like voters and this kind of thing. But in, in, even in Germany at the time of the Lutheran Reformation, who calls the next pastor at the local parish? Sometimes it's going to be the church, the city council. Sometimes who it's going to be a, if it gets ordained. Yeah, or, yeah. Who's, it, it, sometimes educated. it's going to be uh, the local congregation at certain places in certain times. It's going to be uh, whatever. It, it's it's never been this this kind of pure thing. And, and I always get a kick out of people who want to go back to the pure church. And I go, and when exactly was that? Uh, right. Um, the, and, and you try to put upon, especially things that we would describe as an adiaphron, um, uh, like the political structure of a local congregation or, uh, what we'd call a synod today, uh, a denomination. 
you can't look back at these places. Um, it, they're, they're all over the map. They're all over the map. And so the big question is, well, who's in charge? And, uh, and, and then you start to see uh, the rise of, of, of churches within principalities. How are they going to govern themselves? Um, you know, who, if, if you're a prince in, uh, in some territory, who are you going to allow to worship? Are you just going to allow Catholics? Are you going to allow Catholics and Protestants? Are you going to say, okay, you can be Jewish, you can be uh, Catholic, or you can be other? Or can you be Lutheran and Reform? These are legitimate questions. And I think here, this is where my thought when I was reading through it again is where we can maybe take a little bit of a... uh, or you know, uh, what do you call it when you take a side trip? Tangent or a, uh, you know, you you get off the highway and take a little bit of a trip. But I think um, some important things for us to understand is when we talk about the Reformations, we can talk about a magisterial Reformation or a radical Reformation. And a magisterial Reformation means um, that it had the support of the rulers at the time, the magistrates. A radical Reformation means that it uh, was from the roots up, and either it had no chance of support from the state or it wanted no support from the straight from the state. So this was not like radical, like awesome, or radical, you know, like the surfer awesome, or radical, like um, that uh, it's a little off the radar. But this was a uh, who is supporting this, and maybe a, a better way to think of it would be: is this a top down or a bottom up reformation? And radical from the roots, from the roots, right? Radix, radish, um, you know, stuff like that, and so. When we think of the magisterial reformations, I think we can speak of uh, three branches that are most commonly spoken about. Um, and this kind of excludes England because England is going to be its own thing. But you have the Lutheran Reformation, which was magisterial by default. Luther didn't want it to be magisterial, but when the church would not um, support reform, he appealed to the German nobility. And so by default, he said these are no bischoff and these are emergency bishops who are going to step up for now until we get stuff in order. And the problem in the German church is they never step down. And so you have a Landeskirche, you know, you have a state church in, um, in Germany. The other big magisterial reformation is going to be the reformed, which would be Calvin or, or Zwingli. So in Zurich, you have uh, Zwingli gets popular support or gets support from, um, the council in Zurich. And so, uh, um, the Swiss had a confederation. It's much more of a, if we think of maybe a big metropolitan area today, uh, Zurich is kind of that. Uh, Zwingli is more sophisticated because of the nature of that. But he's going he's gonna to win the support of the government there. Um, and then Calvin will do the same in Geneva. Um, England's going to be unique because if you were just to look at how stuff played out on the continent, you would have said England would be Lutheran. Um, because Lutheranism, the appeal to a prince, fit perfectly with England. Um, the conservative Reformation, Henry was not so keen on images, but he had a very high view of the Lord's Supper. Um, it just seemed to be the better fit. What really seemed to have played against Lutheranism was uh, Luther called Henry a lot of names well, and um, the, earlier. And the, and the other thing, too, is you know Henry VIII, because of his father and the War of the Roses and all that stuff, um, there's a strong monarch there where there's not a strong, there's no monarch really in, in Germany. Right. I mean, there's political differences there too. I don't know if that. Right. But the reform definitely have more of a tradition of, um, appealing to local authority. 
whereas the Lutherans, Lutherans tend to appeal to Gustavus Adolphus. Um, think of Christian in Denmark. Um, even princes, we consider that local authority, but it's definitely a step beyond an area. You're, you're not winning over. It's not. Um, now, none of this was democratic, but it's not democratic in the sense of trying to win over. Um, multi, you're not campaigning for something, if that makes sense. Um, radical, on the other hand, uh, we think of the Amish and Mennonites. We think of peaceful. Mennonites wear color. If you're ever at a Union Station in Chicago, right, you can tell the Mennonites from the Amish because they're wearing colorful clothes. Peaceful um, TV shows, you know, novels written about them. But there were very violent strains of Anabaptists as well. And we just talked about this in the episode we recorded on uh, um, uh, Luther and uh, uh, Moses. And how, how Christians should regard Moses. Um, Thomas Mincer, for instance. Carl Stott gets, I think, wrongly lumped with the violent Anabaptists. Um, but there are, uh, there are, it's not purely pacifistic uh, what develops. And this comes out, interestingly, of uh, Zurich because Zwingli, in many ways, laid the groundwork for this with his low view of the sacraments um, and biblicism and stuff like that. And someone who is a, you know, a true who truly appreciates Vingley is going to say I'm producing caricatures and to an extent I am but to an extent I'm not and I've I'm not without having studied this half my dissertation was on Zwingli's influence on uh English uh Christianity Protestantism but uh was Shatsy eating something there or what is she I don't know she must have heard Shatsy's something my there. dog and she was growling at something but um but the radical reformation oftentimes intentionally wants to just rip up the roots and it wants to establish God's kingdom on earth in a very visible way. Oftentimes there's a strong strain of a anti-innovation. Um, uh, um, you know, Luther would talk about, can a Christian be a soldier? And he says, of course they can. But the idea that you have to withdraw from government, um, this becomes very important. And so England will become important because it it melds the two, two traditions, really until the 1540s, it made sense for England to maybe go Lutheran. Uh, one of the best journal journal articles there are is uh, um, The Strange Death of Lutheran England. I'd encourage people to look that up and read it. Um, it's just what an, a journal article should be. But, um, but Henry will always be his own man. And then Edward will be his own man. And then Mary will be her, his own, her own woman. And Elizabeth will be the same. The Tudors were, say what you will about them, um, the government was shaped by their temperament and outlook. And um, and so Henry's going to have Act of Supremacy comes out, and there's going to be this time where, okay, England's Protestant now, and they're doing some Protestant things. But later in his life, there's going to be a real kind of conservative um, drawing back of some of the things he had granted before. And so we're kind of mistaken if we just view England as hardcore Protestant from Henry on. Um, Edward will be the most Protestant in a continental sense of all of them. And Mary obviously is going to uh, react against that. And Elizabeth in many ways was more about um, a settlement or a uh, big tent church um, that tried to avoid really too much confessionalism or, or too much uh, when it comes to doctrinal statements um, but I think so. We look magistrate, and then we look at radical, magisterial or radical, and then recognize 
that you have Lutheran, Reformed, which is Calvin and Zwingli, and Anabaptist, and that England is really going to waver between the, the Lutheran and the Reformed. Yeah, and it's it's what's kind of interesting. Maybe take a different little turn is is that connection between Germany and England uh, politically, right? Um, you have um, uh, intermarriages. You have you have all sorts of stuff, but also uh, ecclesiastically, um, <clears throat> the Thirty Nine Articles um, of the Anglican Church. Um, largely influenced, I, I think I'm safe to say, by the Augsburg Confession. Um, their yeah, worship, so. the common prayer, common book of prayer, um, uh, the standard for the English-speaking liturgical world um, is influenced by a former Roman Catholic bishop, uh, Herman von Veed of Cologne, I believe, um, who became Lutheran and influenced that. And then, the, you know, conversely will very much influence um, American Lutheran worship um, yeah, it's in kinda, the American setting. It's kind of interesting that the that Lutheran influence has to go through England first. Um, and it's, you know, I, I always thought about it would we, we'd have a great episode of, of a great episode of counterfactual historic. We get our historians on there. What happens if this thing doesn't happen? What happens if uh, Cyril and Methodius don't you know, have this agreement to only go to east. You know, I think east of the of the Danube. Um, would would the German uh, Germans be uh, speaking the? You know, uh, would they be using the Cyrillic alphabet? And would that have? Would they have gone with the Eastern Church into the Western Church? Would there have been a Reformation? What happens if the when the Missouri Synod Lutherans, what we now know as the Missouri Synod Lutherans, when their ships came over, that one of their ships with uh, with all the vestments and the and the appointments like the chalice and stuff, sort of what we would call high church stuff doesn't sink. <laughs> uh, what happens if Henry VIII is not a jerk and Luther doesn't call him out for being a jerk? What happens if... Although Luther was kind of being a jerk. Yeah, too. he was. What happens if, if the Lutheran Reformation takes a hold in England? Um, I don't think England's the same way as we know as England today. I think would probably be be the truth. Um, uh, what, what would what would would Lutheranism have? Been what would able America to, be? I mean, denominationalism no. is really born would out there, of the English Church. Would there even be an America? Right. You, you go know? to the continent in Europe, and there is not all these denominations. Yeah, it is a peculiarly peculiar peculiar peculiar. Yeah. I can never say this peculiarly American <laughs> it's a thing. peculiar thing, yeah. But English and American. Yeah, I mean, Baptist, yeah. Presbyterian, Episcopalian, this all comes out of the British setting, and then it gets exported to America, and you have a new denomination you every day. You have dissenters, you have this, yeah. you have... And, and breaking off because of... Um, uh, Not even just doctrine, just yeah, church governance. Yep. Church governance, structural things. Presbyter means elder. Episcopal means bishop. The congregational means congregation. You know, peculiarly. Yeah, I think there you I go. Said it. And and so you wonder what would happen there if you know uh, Robert with Barnes if he if he um, is not you know he he, he dies, should have right? his own episode too. Right? Yeah, you know I mean there, there's one. just quite a few things there, and um, at the same time at the same time um, sometimes we look at the Episcopal. Paleon Church, which is the Anglican Church in America, what it's called, and of course there's breakoffs from that that call themselves um, Anglican and very purposely uh, trying to go away from the Episcopalian Church here in America. But there, there's 
when we think about the Episcopalian church, we, oh, what about you, you know, those mainline churches and whatever. Um, we got a lot in common with them too. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, there's obviously some differences that we can't just, um, ignore, um, but but there's an interesting history there. I mean, who's the Missouri Synod president who supposedly said, like, if there's no Lutheran church, go find a Baptist church or whatever, because at least they're right on Scripture. They're just without the sacraments. I honestly think someone who takes Lutheran theology seriously, if there's no Lutheran church, I would find the most confessing Anglican Episcopalian oh, church I could. Absolutely, and I think I think that. The Episcopalian Church and the Anglican Church sure, as a I'm whole. Strong monergists. And people don't get the, the breadth of the variety of voices in, yeah. in Episcopalianism or Anglicanism. And part of it has to do just with their culture and the way they govern themselves, that they don't govern themselves in, in the way that maybe Lutherans do and certainly not where, where the uh, Roman Catholics do, that they're more loosely tied and they're more culturally they tied together. They have a stronger together. church governance structure but they less police. Or maybe it's less oppressive. Would yeah, be. I, I think it just they don't have the the they don't have the police structure. I think is a good way to think about it. And that, and maybe maybe I'm wrong in here, but tied more liturgically and culturally. Um, and and this gets to to Noel's point that you're talking about national churches rather than a church that's just about a specific confession. And there's some problems with that. But the point is that within the Anglican community, there's debates that are going on that we Lutherans don't have because we just we just break off from each other. And Baptists don't have because they just break off from each other. And Roman Catholics don't have because they just say, well, you know, we're all under the Pope. And so um, you should pay attention to the Anglican Church and you can find some really wacky stuff in the Episcopalian Church. And, and that's not, I'm not... There is not anybody in the Episcopalian Church that would not agree with that statement. I'm not being pejorative here in that sense. Um, but there are some people there that are, man, they're Lutheran. I would say I would and, still and, say one of the best services I've ever been to, and don't worry, I was uh, full wells. I was not participating. Although I didn't, you didn't sit by me because the pew we were in was, was breaking well, apart, so you had to go... And, and I, was, two fa- I was the guy two, who would have broke it because it was, I noticed it was hanging, like two of the three screws that held on the side it, were loose. It was loose. two fat guys in a pew and there was a one fat guy limit on the pew, right. and so you had to move. So I don't know for sure so if I you, went back in more to the corner, but... Um, I don't know if you prayed and sang. I just like that you know the service I'm talking about because I think you had the you same did, impression You did not it. go up to Holy Communion, neither did I. Right. And, uh, yeah, um... So, I mean, I, I, I just to be present at it. Calvary St. George's and Yeah, one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I would say just the vitality of the feel in it, um, in a liturgical sense, not manufactured, was uh, was outstanding. And uh, I would say uh, that's not to say, that is not saying anybody should go to an Episcopal church service or a Lutheran church service or whatever. It's just to say um, that sometimes I think we, fail to understand or appreciate the uh, breadth of opinions and uh, views and uh, the extent to which, in many ways, the best of Lutheranism has been, uh, has infected, maybe to use it, even if it's in an unintentional way, um, 
church bodies, and I think that Anglicanism and Episcopalianism have a fair amount of early Luther, early Lutheran influence um, that is sometimes evident still today. Um, that being said, some of the most Calvinist people you'll ever read were also from the Church of England, and uh, the Church of England gives us uh, the Wesleys and Methodism and, and all of that too. Um, but it's always interesting to me how American it is where we'll say, well, if, you, if you're not going to be Lutheran, well, then, you know, go to a fundamentalist church that just doesn't, it, um, Do, this is just getting at the, appreciate the breadth right. of Christian theology. And I mean, Cranmer to me is, uh, is, you know, always fascinating. I mean, Cranmer is, there's this shift in Cranmer where you see the shift towards Zurich and I always feel bad when that happens. But a sincere guy who is just trying to um, patiently bring the church, with all the dynamics in play, trying to bring the, the Church of England where he thinks it should be um, in weakness, he recants at the end of life, but then sticks the hand that signed uh, the recantation into the fire first. Um, there's just a lot to uh, to that that I think we don't appreciate. Robert Barnes, Thomas Cromwell, I mean, there's, there's even Anne Boleyn, I mean, there is stuff to be considered there, and I think that, and and this is partly influenced by stuff I've been reading lately, so forgive me, Mike, if I'm out of line, but we sometimes think the church, we say, well, the state, well, that's full of sinners, so it's going to be messy. And the home, well, that's full of sinners, so it's going to be messy, but the church... Well, Mike, if I could ask you, what is the church full of? It's full of sinners. Oh, and so sometimes it's not as clean as we think. And you can have people who, we're going, why would Anne Boleyn marry someone who is already, okay, well, that that's great and all. But at the same time, that same person can have sensitivities or inclinations towards some good things, too. Um, this we is we got ex- some blind spots, This is an extended too. tangent, but I guess, yeah, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, we... We, and the, I mean, this is just the founding of the Wells, too. I mean, Wells is not Lutheran when it starts. It's Lutheran Reformed. I mean, there's joint, there's services where communion is being given out for the Reformed and the Lutheran um, groups. I mean, this, we sometimes forget how God works great things in the church through messy people and messy situations. And I think there's something um, to marvel at in some of this history of as much as uh, there's developments that we we would opine now, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens too. Yeah, I, you know, apologetic note too. When when somebody, I've only had this happen a couple of times where I had the guts to say it, but when someone would say, "Oh, I don't want to deal with the church because I'm not going to go to church because it's just what they're saying is there's a bunch of sinners there," or more accurately, someone someone said something that made them uncomfortable or someone said something that was actually mean, you know, whatever it was, you know, and go, I, I just, you think you're holier than thou in the church. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to join a group that, that is like that. And, and so if someone says, Oh, the church is a bunch of, you know, sinners and whatever, I'm like, Oh, you would know, you don't know the half of it. You should go to a church council meeting. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? You know, boy, I there. It's 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 an ugly place, and uh, you got to start seeing the church as a hospital of sick people, and not um, not a bunch of, of Pharisees. And uh, shame on us for portraying ourselves as a bunch of Pharisees. You know, um, when we are all in the same boat here. And so, I guess if we can go back to what's going on in England, because I think. 
and I belabor this somewhat because I think Lutherans have this romantic view of we have this confessional reformation. Like there was no church before. There was a church from 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 St. Paul and then it stopped and then And Luther there was came. no political, you know, dynamics in play or cultural stuff. We were just about, you know, the catechisms and the Augsburg Confession. Well, who signed that and who was presenting it? Luther wasn't there. Um, you had a lot of German nationalists, not not like Nazi nationalists, but people who had, you know, had a a history of issues with Rome. Yeah, um, not nationalists as in the nation of Germany, right. but it, like that wasn't even a concept. It, at yeah, this they, point. they didn't even. It was before it's, it's not a concept for a very long right. time. But like the guy over the mountains, the corrupt guy in the we're sick of him. You and know, his crap. this is not yeah. this is not cool. You know, and for us American, you know. We we don't like tea tax, right? Are you kidding me? I mean, they were they were bullied. Well, and even the formula of conquer, which comes out later, and not to drop Flacius again, but one of Matthias Flacius' lyricists' objections was this was something that was uh, initiated or at least supported by the state. Um, our own history is not as uh, as clean as we think. the The difference was um, the theologians had a much more domineering voice simply by virtue of the fact that Germany was less unified, there was not one king, um, and that Luther had such a prophetic voice. Um, I mean, Luther, of all the reformers, is the one that people will speak of in prophetic terms. Even people who disagree with him will say, well, he was an Elijah. Um, England doesn't have that. I mean, Martin Butcher will make his way over there. Butcher's a level-headed guy. He'd been in Strasbourg. Um Almost too level-headed, right? Wants to right. play both sides, yeah. And England's going to be more honest up front about how the, they're going to have a state church. But Germany ends up in exactly the same place, um, or a very similar place by that. The Reformed intentionally end up that way because that's what they want. I mean, Zwingli wants the state to excommunicate, not the church. Um, but uh, it's so pharisaical, right? You know, I want the or the right. Sanhedrin. Let, let, let Rome do that. Well, and, and now today when we'll say we want a separation of church and state, Christians consistently vote and advocate for the state to do their bidding. And no one can tell me that we don't. Um, we appeal to or pin our hopes, even in an eschatological way, on the state both all the time. Left and right. And, you know, we'll think, oh, we're America, we don't have a state church. Um no one is more ecumenical than someone with a political agenda. And uh, and so I guess what I'm getting at is these things are unfolding live for these people who are involved. Um, and to understand what that means. And so I think, as Mike said earlier in the podcast, to not judge the consequences unfairly. Most of these people are not looking 100 years ahead. They are looking ahead. They're looking 10 years ahead. I, I want... English people go to heaven, so I want to encourage Protestantism. But they are not looking at 1750, 1850, 1950. Um, but they also are not divorced from their past. And the Reformed, I think, fall more subject to this than the Lutherans, although this is not true today. I mean, at that time, Lutherans fall in the same trap today of thinking it was divorced from the past. It was absolutely not divorced from the past. These were all developments that grew out of Two things, studies of the scriptures and the past. I mean, it, none of this was, was in a, uh, um, 
vacuum. Yeah, the history is so important there. I mean, we bring it up again and again to, you know, give us a little bit of perspective on our problems. They seem pretty small. You know, we're getting long here, but I, I want to ask you at least one more question. I got a couple, but the the influence of, of Luther on a kind of a German, what I want to say here, I don't want to say nationalism because that's not, that's not even on their radar, but just the a sense a, of German, yeah, myth, German maybe? identity. I'm sure there's a German word for it, you know, that, um, you know, when we go, I, I, I hope that our next wing in its series will go through the life of Luther. And, and what I'd like to bring up is, or one of them, maybe we yeah, do something seasonal, but yeah, he's, he's Deutsch he, in a lot of his titles. He's got, yeah. he's got some pretty good princes. He's got some good politicians. Um, you know, all they're actually, well, they're wise, right? I mean, they, 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 they are, they're, I'd kill for a politician like that he had, uh, under, under, uh, or over him during his time there. Um, but it's Luther who, via the language of Germany, um, via the, um, uh, sticking sticking a, a thumb into the nose There's not of an a German Italian today who thinks in their head who isn't influenced by Luther. And it is something atheist or or Christian. And it's something that can take, you know, historically some people have read back I, I think mostly incorrectly um, you know, the rise of Luther, sure. then straight line <laughs> to <laughs> nationalism the Shire myth, and then, yeah. yeah, the Shire myth and I got a story about that. Um uh, I had uh, two teenage girls in my teen class years ago. Just, oh, just could, would love to replicate them. They were just absolutely fantastic. And and uh, we had a teen class, and we were talking about stuff. And they raised their hand, and they said, "Our history teacher said that basically the Shire myth, and um, you know that Luther." Led a direct to line. If you imagine yeah, like an evolutionary the, chart, the instead of the ape to people, there's just a dude walking and then a guy Nazi saluting at the right, end. Yeah, you know, and I said, you go to this, you know, sophomore history professor at a at a at a high school of two hundred in Podunk, Minnesota, and you say, not only is he wrong, he's so wrong that that wrongness has a name and it's called the Shire myth. Mm. And they came back and they said, you know what? He backed down a little bit. And so, but anyway. My favorite thing is in that book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is not a bad book if you're looking for a book. Just It's a good read. But I believe he even has a footnote in there, which I poked fun of in a paper once. Because one of my minor fields is uh, modern Germany, especially Holocaust studies. Um, He says, and I'm equipped to speak on this because I'm a Methodist. Like, so a Methodist made him a Protestant, made him a, you know, and if you read, like... Like he's a third party. If you read yeah. the history of Lutheranism in America, there's no bigger pejorative, like, in the in the early days than Methodist, you Right, know? right. We're not Methodists, says C.F. Yeah. Walther when he talks about liturgics. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that but, but Luther is a huge, back to the point of Noel there, that you start, you start seeing the church tied not to the universality of the papacy, but something else. And what is that something else going to be? Well, is it going to be French? Is it going to be English? Is it going to be German? Is it going to be even local, more local than that? Um, and, 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 and Luther just Noel says like, Luther there's a new Europe. The universality of the confession. Right. But the problem is that's never going to be able to happen for Luther because the reformation only will survive as you're getting at in France, Germany, now the, the low countries, 
where there is um, magisterial support. Yeah, yeah and there's, it's just going to be different. It's just the, the, the matter of it. And so there's a new Europe, right? And, and so I think we can rightfully say this is a step towards nationalism. At the same time, um, it's not like... Or the like, development of nations. It's not, yeah, and it's not like... Which is better to say, yeah, correctly. Uh, but that's not to say, as maybe some Roman Catholics have said, that, well, see you break this apart and then what happens? And it's not just, okay, we have these different nations and then they don't get along and then they, they war and then you have the religious wars. And then all of a sudden we say, okay, if we just get rid of religion, then everything will be peaceful, which of course is incorrect. But, um, there is some truth to the matter that when you take away this supremacy of the papacy, that things are going to be quite different. And and even more than that, there's a concept of free thought, right? So I'm not always looking over my back at an inquisition or whatever, but that, of course, that's going to happen later anyway, but you, you have the ability to have free thought. And when it comes to the freedom of thought, you're going to have a lot of ugliness. So it's always surprised me, um, and yet not surprised me, that when you think about um, some of the, the great philosophers of 1700s, but even more so the 1800s, how many of them were like, uh, son of a Lutheran pastor, <laughs> uh, grandson of a Lutheran pastor, and the ones that were really often atheistic. And uh, when it comes to that freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, looking at the scriptures, you also open yourself up to people are going to have a different interpretation. And it's kind of like the, it's kind of like free speech. You, you have to put up with a lot of garbage to have free speech and the freedom religion is, I think there's a parallel there. And I think in our own sentence history, um, Mike, you know me. If you would have asked me in seminary what I thought of the Wauwatosa theologians, I would have gone off on an angry rant for a while. And I'm still trying you to... Have, you have recently said, right. I kind of dig those guys. And I'm, I'm trying to warm up on August Peeper. I just... It's hard for me to get too excited about either Peeper brother. But um, but J.P. Kaler and even Schaller somewhat, um, probably the most productive theologically, the most um, uh, alive uh, part of our history was the Wauwatosa theology, at which time they were doing precisely what you're talking about, too, of really doing theology in reaction to a theology that was too official or policed. Um, and it's the great irony to me of our life as a synod that we will constantly quote them, we don't do father theology, <laughs> but then appeal to our fathers, sometimes bloodline fathers and grandfathers. Um, there was There was... And you look at the Wauwatosa theology and it blew up. And, and I'd love to get Peter Prangy on at some point for something on this. But, you know, Kaler ends up outside the Synod and it, he butts heads with August Pieper. Um, but there's an inherent danger to really being free to speak and think, um, especially theologically. And I think... Uh, you know, we pin that on the Reformation. We said, well, the Reformation made the Enlightenment possible or made, you know, you, you mentioned the German, Kant, Hegel, you know, I mean, the list could go on and on. Um, 
but it also made the Reformation possible, right? Like this, this thing that uh, we cherish, and I, I'll admit, one of the hymns that I'm, I used to love, and I'm kind of tired of, and I'm gonna offend someone with this, but this, uh, you know, we, we all get together and sing, uh, "God's Word is our great heritage," and whatever else, and and that's a wonderful hymn. It's a powerful hymn, and I, I, I love when we're singing it well, but it can become kind of the opposite what we mean it to be too when we sing it in like this kind of we've got the bible figured out and we are you know we're going to be the 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 preservation of christendom or whatever the case may be um there's there's some hubris there that's not intended in the hymn right so i mean sometimes there's a danger in freedom but there's also a real danger in comfortability and uh this desire to um I mean, the English church eventually had to settle on, we're going to come up with like a happy minimum that we can agree on, like a political platform almost, you know, of we're not going to say too much, but we're going to say not too little so we can get by. Um, And you almost either settle on that or you settle on a dogmatism that tries to defend everything or you settle on a kind of like Anabaptism did where it's just every person in their Bible. And uh, I think... Every age, every uh, um, every uh, incarnation of the church, I guess, denominationally, uh, geographically, uh, temporally, needs to wrestle with to what extent uh, will we wrestle with these tensions. And, and that's the irony of we have Presbyterians, Episcopalians, we have um, Lutherans who are defining things exactly— or answering casuistry exactly the same way as it was answered in the 16th or 17th centuries, um, to what extent are we really willing to put our neck out and try to do what they did, which is to say God's word is so infallible, it's so inspired, it's so precious, um, that we are going to try to uh, take this into our lives with neighbor in society where we are now. And I think Cranmer was probably as dissatisfied as anybody who reads about Cranmer later, that there was no um, lasting uh, semi-utopian solution. I think Luther would be shocked by the state of the the state church today in Germany. Um, I think the Amish and Mennonites fathers, for all that they might be impressed with the the determination of their heirs, would probably be like, you know... Do something. Dude, there's iPhones. You know, um, but... uh, it uh, and I mean, reformed. I think just in general, there would be great uh, um, consternation with the failure of really that church-state dynamic to take to to catch on or last. Um, and that's an episode two of why that always fails, and and I have my own take on that. But um, But I think to get it at the Diet of Worms and this with the Act of Supremacy, there is so much history that is pertinent to today that we dare not take it for granted. Um, and, I mean, you look at Henry. I mean, under Henry you have, um, can you be closing off land? Can can people claim to own land and close it off from the peasants in closure, right, for their own purposes, and that not anybody can hunt that or, or whatever the case may be? There are these huge political economic questions that are playing into that don't get realized. Um, I think it's just a very timely thing and something that we neglect to our own uh, our own peril. 
Yeah, and I think uh, such a, such a, a turning point as the title of the Knowles book uh, indicates uh, for for our day and for the new Europe that's going to emerge there, and still trying to figure out what Europe is and what's uh, what its identity is, even more so today with Brexit and all that kind of stuff. Next time we're going to get to the rise of the Jesuits, and so we're going to see a definite reaction to this Which kind of free thought. Which will be a fun thought. one if we... Yeah. i got to send you some so readings you, on that. Yeah, you're going to have to take the lead on that one. You definitely know more than, than I do about that and as of this topic, too. But um, as we get to those uh, Jesuits, I think we need to, as we look back historically, appreciate the freedom that we have, especially in the gospel. Um, And so until then, we'll let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down. I don't care what the people are thinking.